Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning. sweaters as I sit in our bedroom beneath our wedding photo, three feet away from our bed, the bed where Jim took his last breath. I was so upset that I washed all of his clothes before I knew he was going to die. I often find myself in Jim's closet, hugging his clothes, going from shirt to shirt, sniffing like a bloodhound. Catching a whiff of him gives me a moment in heaven. I close my eyes and hold my breath, suspending his essence in the back of my nose. I try to keep it there as long as I can. For a split second, it's like he's there with me. With each passing day, I become increasingly obsessed with the idea that I need to chronicle the course of our lives from January to July 2020. But every time I try to write, my thoughts scatter around like cockroaches in abrupt light. The only difference is my thoughts don't hide. They scramble around all haywire in a confined space. The mental activity shorts my circuits. I can think of so many things to say, but by the time I try to write, I'm paralyzed. All I can do is stare at anything, anywhere, out the window, at the ceiling. My eyes fix, allowing my thoughts to slow down and walk the inner void of my soul. When I snap out of it, I either clean something, cook something, or take care of an animal. Jim's cancer took him so fucking fast. I am desperate to understand what the hell happened, so I turned to capturing every single artifact from those days and studying them like a research scientist. I spend hours reading Jim's medical records and comparing them to my notes and CaringBridge posts. Alternately, I look at photos and listen to music, bathing my soul in my memories of Jim. It's agony to see him, to see us, and all our lovely life together. Smiling, laughing, making things, doing things, loving each other, our kids, our friends and families. By the time I pull myself away, I'm in despair. Yet I press forward, reliving the brutality of Jim's last six months. Piece by piece, I stitch together the evidence of Jim's existence with the audacity of that modern Prometheus, Dr. Frankenstein, in an attempt to breathe life back into him. An act of defiance as well as love. 
I delve into this obsession with reincarnation like a crazed sorceress. But is it so far-fetched to believe that memorializing Jim's life in story form will leave an indelible mark on the hearts of all who listen, thereby keeping him alive in perpetuity? And so it goes. Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning, is a story about family viewed from behind the plexiglass of a cancer diagnosis. You're invited to listen and share this tale with anyone who wants to know what our battle was like, for anyone who wants to view the inside of a tenacious marriage, and for anyone who wants to help me hold on to the memories of my exceptional husband, Jim. Introduction. If you live in a climate that makes a big production of wintry weather, the sound of someone trying to get their car dislodged from a snowbank is unmistakable. Most folks who grow up in a snowy region are familiar with the rocking method employed to extricate a car from the snow. It doesn't always work, mind you, but the knowledge is crucial to giving yourself a fighting chance. You need at least two people, one person pushing while the driver is working the gas pedal. There is no gunning of the engine, which is what most people inexperienced with snow and ice are wont to do. Gunning it and hoping for the best is what digs you in deeper, eventually cementing your car in place until spring. Rocking the car is nuanced choreography in which the participants have to be in total sync with each other. It's notable that in my neighborhood, where street parking is the norm, this dance is often done between total strangers. Let's say we need to get the car moving forward. First, the driver puts the car in drive while the other person, or people, depending on the stuckness and availability of bodies, stands behind the car. The driver touches the gas lightly, and whoever is in back of the car simultaneously pushes forward. The purpose of the initial effort is not to dislodge the car. The people in back are merely trying to leverage the car's momentum. It's a little bit like pushing a kid on a swing. You don't want to push the little tyke off their perch. You just want to enhance their own pumping power. After the first hit of gas and subsequent push, the car will roll back. The collaborators quickly repeat the process to try and get the rocking going. Gas forward, helpers push, car rocks back. Gas forward, people push, car rocks back a little more. If all goes well, you'll be able to feel the tires gaining ground. With any luck, it'll only take a couple more repeats of the sequence before the driver can accelerate in earnest while the people pushing can put their all into the effort and free the vehicle. Successful efforts are marked by a heap of patience and collaboration. The other day, I heard the unmistakable sound of a neighbor trying to free their car without the aforementioned game plan. From my window, I could see the tires smoking as they ground down into snow and ice while the driver jammed the gas. 
It wasn't long before the unmistakable sound of rubber hitting asphalt rang out through the whole neighborhood with a Well, now you've done it, I thought. It all starts easily enough. Novice drivers or people unfamiliar with snowbelt territory jump into their vehicle as if it were a summer day and plan to drive off to do whatever needs doing. They don't stop to consider the possibility that they may not be able to get out of the four feet of snow the city plows just dropped around their car. After their first attempt at an exit is thwarted by the cement-like wall around them, their first thought isn't based in logic. It's more under the umbrella of denial. The fact that they can't easily drive away messes with their head. I need to go somewhere important. If I don't leave now, I'm going to be late. I'm the master of my destiny, and my car works in service of my busyness. From that perspective, it makes sense that hitting the gas and willing the car forward is their go-to. It's unfathomable that this situation, if not managed carefully, will be the catalyst of an aggravating domino effect, knocking all their plans down for the day. That's what it was like when we went into the hospital. Both Jim and I were going our usual thousand miles an hour, large and in charge of our full lives. Sitting in the emergency room for seven hours only aggravated our resolve to keep our frenetic pace. We were fully expecting to get a manageable diagnosis with instructions to call the doctor in the morning. I could feel my right foot pressing an imaginary gas pedal. When they told us Jim had cancer and that we had to check into the cancer center immediately, it wasn't registering with me. I was still gunning the engine. Can't we go home and call our doctor? The head of the ER tried not to scream, No! in my face. She explained that they strongly recommended that we go directly to the cancer center for immediate admission. Okay, well I guess maybe this situation is more complicated than we thought. We were taken up to the cancer center shortly after 9 p.m. Our dominoes from the day had all fallen down. What we didn't know at the time was that all our dominoes were about to be taken away for the rest of our lives. Before we entered the cancer center, an oncology resident came to see us in the ER. I don't remember much about that conversation. I think he told us that they suspected Jim had a blood cancer. More tests needed to be run, and they would know more once they received the results. It's hard to remember details because my brain was stuck in this what, what, what loop. Your car isn't going anywhere, ma'am. You're going to have to cancel your plans for today, tomorrow, and, well, the foreseeable future. You're going to need the patience of Job and a legion of people to help you rock it out of the snow, so just stop gunning it. My head was like an echo chamber holding these bouncing thoughts. Three days ago, Jim was going about his regular routine. He went to work and went for a run at lunchtime. Saturday night, he picked me up from the airport and we planned our next trip together on our car ride home. Sunday morning, he helped friends move furniture. We're both healthy people. We've been active our whole lives. Jim is a force of nature. He's a musician and a visual artist. He has an engaging job. He rebuilt everything in our house. In fact, he just single-handedly remodeled our kitchen. Our college-age kids are almost out of the house. We're planning the back nine of our employment years to set up for retirement.
Chapter 1. The End Activity radiates from the pages of our 2019 family calendar like crackling electricity. Work, projects, school, trips, hikes, holidays, life, 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 shouts my calendar with a seemingly unstoppable surge of energy. We had such a fun year. I was laid off at the end of 2018. Greatest 50th birthday present I could have ever received. Though the banking industry just spat me out like expired lunch meat, my eight-year tour of duty had been quite lucrative. Instead of jumping back into the job market, I decided to take a self-funded sabbatical. I had ideas I wanted to explore, so I spent the year writing, taking courses, and producing my own podcast. Unlike my years of work-related travel, my educational pursuits were all conducted from the comfort of my own home. I had worked my ass off for years. After running in the rat race like an ultra-marathoner, staying home and taking a load off felt awesome. Most weekday mornings, I would sit and drink coffee with Josh, our resident Canadian, while Jim got ready for work. Jim and Josh carpooled together, so Josh walked to our house every morning to meet him for their commute. We hung out so often, he became another brother to us. Jim was seldom ready when Josh arrived, so we'd discuss news of the day over breakfast while Jim ran around the house like a chicken with his head cut off. My mental picture of Jim's frantic weekday routine juxtaposed next to mine and Josh's coffeehouse vibe still makes me laugh. Once they finally got out the door, I would go up to my office and work on my projects. Both of our sons were on the runway to independence. Soon, they would be out of the house entirely, leaving us to enjoy our couplehood without distraction. Jim and I were getting back to that sweet spot in a marriage, the empty nester era where we could enjoy each other's company and the quiet beauty of our home like we did pre-kids. We got in the habit of taking a passeggiata every evening. The seasons would change around us as we walked around the neighborhood and talked about our plans for the future. I was ready for a life transition, admittedly a little bit ahead of Jim. My vision was to launch a remote consulting business so we could travel to warm locales during the winters, providing the opportunity to scout out retirement options. There were so many places we wanted to see. We already had a couple big trips under our belt that year. The best one by far was an epic hiking trip to search for Forest Fen's treasure in honor of our 25th wedding anniversary. The search was on my list of things to do since Fen announced he'd buried the treasure ten years prior. Now was our big chance. We packed up and went to Wyoming to try our hand at the most fascinating treasure hunt of modern times. We didn't find the treasure, but we did have the trip of our lives. This fantastic year was capped off by a great Christmas. Great Christmas are not words that pass my lips often. I've never been a fan of the holiday, so much so that for the last ten years I've been on a campaign, albeit unsuccessful, to turn Christmas into second Thanksgiving where we could enjoy our family's company without the insanity of inflexible traditions infused with borderline psychotic commercialism. Jim, on the other hand, always loved Christmas. He was more excited about the holiday than your typical four-year-old. I remember when we first started dating. We went out with my sister for a few drinks the night before he went home to Rochester for the holidays. As he was leaving my apartment, he turned to us with a huge grin on his face and with a sweeping hand gesture announced he was going home for some bacala. Soon after, I learned that Jim's family observed the seven fishes tradition. 
Essentially, on Christmas Eve, you eat seven different fishes. Then, at midnight, you eat sausage. To this day, I don't understand how stuffing your face with seafood for eight hours, then capping it all off with a block of meat, relates to the birth of Jesus. In my mind, gluttony doesn't seem to jive with the call for peace on earth and goodwill toward man. Shortly after we moved in together, it became crystal clear that Jim's staunch family tradition was uncompromising. The slightest hint of a modification was met with stone-cold resistance. My family's tradition was very different. My parents had five kids within six years. By the time I was in elementary school, both my parents were working full-time as teachers and my dad had an additional part-time job to make ends meet. The pressure around the holidays must have been unbearable. In the early 70s, they were struggling with the dictates of traditional gender roles. That tension bubbled over into unrealistic expectations on domestic duties with regard to cooking, Christmas shopping, decorating, and all the other trappings that accompany the holiday. Add to that stress, Stu, my grandparents. The keepers of family social and moral codes placed unreasonable expectations on our family for religious observances and party attendance on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Neither side cut anyone a break. The pressure cooker that was Christmas invariably blew up into a spectacular argument between my parents on Christmas Eve. Norman Lear once said his family lived at the edge of their nerves and the top of their lungs. That most certainly described our clan. This was the Christmas tradition I grew up with. By the time our kids were two and three, I was way over Jim's family tradition. Staying at someone else's house until midnight with little kids while you still had Santa stuff to do was torture. During those years, I asked Jim if there was any possibility that we could skip it. Once, just once, I would have liked to have stayed home for Christmas. My parents are older. I don't know how many more Christmases we'll have together, was his reply. Twenty-seven, in case you were wondering. Honestly, my best Christmas in the early days of parenthood happened when the kids were sick because projectile vomiting qualified as an authorized excuse to stay home. As a married person, you can be as over it as you want, but you still have to find a way to operate through points of contention. My way was to be angry and bitter about it until February. It helped that my mom didn't pressure us to come over on Christmas Day. Likely still stinging from years of annual Christmas fights, she knew that as a new mom I was under enough pressure. I'm sure she didn't want to see the perpetuation of the San Filippo family tradition in my household any more than I did. Old habits die hard, though. When the kids were babes, I did a fair amount of Christmas San Filippo style. But one of the great things about being human is that we have the ability to learn from our mistakes and make different choices. Eventually, I learned how to create my boundaries and carve out some really nice holiday activities that we all cherish and remember. Though Jim was firm on his Christmas Eve tradition, he was open to everything else I wanted to do on the other days. I needed to wield compromise like a cudgel to bash the shackles of my old habits. Then, the moment I'd been waiting for... Christmas 2019, Jim's 89-year-old mom announced she would no longer host Christmas Eve. Hallelujah, I thought. Christmas Eve at home. We can relax, build a fire, and sit in front of the tree. We finally get a Christmas Eve at home together. 
The warm glow of my Christmas Eve fantasy was interrupted by Jim's announcement that he had booked a gig for that night. No fucking joke. The first free Christmas Eve in 27 years, and my husband booked a gig. I'm going to let you imagine how that conversation went. Fortunately, turning 50, coupled with the joys of unemployment, had mellowed me out considerably. I turned my focus to Christmas Day. We were hosting my whole family, 18 high-energy personalities. Jim and I collaborated on all aspects of the festivities. We had been watching a lot of cooking shows on PBS over the course of the year. Steve Raiklin, in particular, enticed us with his smoked meats and barbecues. We decided on ribs and pulled pork instead of our regular labor-intensive lasagna sauce and meatballs. All the heavy lifting was done the day before so we could actually enjoy the day with our company. Any animosity I had over Christmas Eve quickly dissipated. Christmas Day was a smash hit. My entire family showed up. Grown-ups and young-downs alike had a good time. We ate, played games, and actually sang carols. Even my father, who had become bellicose over the course of the Trump administration, gave political vitriol a break for the day. The picture of my whole family singing Christmas carols together could have been captured by Norman Rockwell instead of Norman Lear. Our family had come a long way, trading in anxiety and bitterness for peace and harmony. A true Christmas miracle. Shortly after the holidays wrapped, we were pointed toward the promise of a new year. I was getting ready for a week-long trip to Puerto Rico with a friend. Puerto Rico was on my target list for potential retirement locales. Jim couldn't get the time off work yet, so we planned to take another scouting trip together in March. A few days before I left, Jim mentioned that he had a pain in his chest. Upon further discussion, he narrowed it down to the ribs on his left side. He didn't make a big deal about it, so I didn't pay much attention to this new discomfort. Besides, I was preoccupied with getting ready to leave. Upon my return, I was going to be immersed in the work of launching my new executive coaching business. As usual, I had multiple to-do lists running through my head like a ticker tape parade. Jim wasn't one to visit the doctor for unexplained ailments or pains. In typical fashion, he self-diagnosed. Maybe I pulled a muscle while lifting weights, he speculated. A similar scenario had happened about 20 years ago. He complained of a pain in his chest one morning before I went to work. I was a part-time personal trainer at the time. My first client was at 5 a.m., and I was usually finished by noon. I brought up Jim's chest pain to my last client of the day as a way to make small talk to keep her mind off her exercise-induced discomfort. Her response scared the bejesus out of me. She told me a story about a young, healthy man who had a widow-maker heart attack after ignoring a pain in his chest. She was from Texas. Somehow her accent added emphasis to the urgency of her story. He was a young guy, maybe about 40, and in great shape. I'm telling you, he just came back from a run. He went into his living room, sat down, and that was it. Dead as a doornail. Without any warning. You need to go home right now and get your husband to the hospital. Her story put me into a flat-out panic. I ran home and insisted Jim go to his doctor. It turned out to be a pulled muscle after all. He was very annoyed with my Chicken Little impersonation. Fast forward 20 years, where that relic of an incident did not help my case to get him to seek medical attention for this chest pain. Alas, 
long memories contribute to the mountain of grievances shared by a couple. But I didn't insist or nag him about it. It's not that I worried less 20 years later. Relationships evolve so much over time. One of the things I decided after I turned 50 was that nagging Jim about certain marital stuck points, like his health, didn't add any value to our couplehood, so I stopped. Jim can take care of his own body and make his own decisions, I told myself. If there were adverse effects from his decisions, then we'd just have to deal with them as they came. Besides, if I inquired about his plans to mitigate whatever ailed him, it was received as a provocation, not an expression of concern. Engaging him in useless bickering about it wouldn't motivate him to go to the doctor, so why bother? It would just aggravate us both. I didn't pursue the issue and went to Puerto Rico. Oddly, during that same week before I left, Jim started asking me about updating our wills. We hadn't updated them in at least 20 years. He became increasingly persistent about tending to this task. Perhaps the pain was bothering him more than he was willing to admit? Did he know subconsciously that something was wrong with his body? I didn't make the connection at the time. His persistence on the subject was uncharacteristic, and I responded with annoyance rather than concern. We split household administrative duties, and retirement funds and wills fell in my category. If Jim had an idea or wanted to have input in my category, he'd harangue me until I addressed the matter. And I did the same to him. We were equal opportunity pains in the ass. This time, I was super annoyed because it seemed he wanted me to deal with it in the three days before I left, and that just wasn't going to happen. Finally, I said to him in exasperation, What is the big deal? I don't plan on dying in Puerto Rico. We can take care of it when I get back. While in Puerto Rico, I had an eerie feeling that I couldn't shake. I chalked it up to being in an unfamiliar setting, though I never had this feeling in the other places I've traveled. What compounded the weird feeling was that I didn't hear from Jim very much during the week. He'd wait a day or two to respond to my texts. That wasn't cause for alarm, but it did feel peculiar. I excused the irregularity in my mind by chalking it up to his busy schedule. When I did hear from him, he sounded preoccupied. My friend's sister joined our Puerto Rico travel party. Her marriage had a 23-year lead on mine. Her husband had some health problems that she was concerned about as well. It seemed she had done a lot more work on accepting what she could not control than I had. Yes, I decided not to nag my husband about his health, but it still bugged me. I was working on trying to find a way to let it go, but she seemed to be much further down that road. I remember expressing my exasperation. I shared with her that I understood this was an emotionally mature approach, but I still thought Jim's behavior was completely unfair. It upset me that if something happened to him as a result of his lack of self-care, I would be the one who had to endure watching him suffer. And if it was grave, I'd be the one left to pick up the pieces. It's chilling to realize how prescient that conversation was. That conversation highlighted the conundrum that affects every kind of human relationship. Couples, siblings, parents, and friends all grapple with the frustration of wanting to control their loved one's decisions. I mean, just try asking your 85-year-old father to surrender the keys to his car, or get your young adult daughter to go to the doctor when you're sure she has strep throat. We tell ourselves time and again, you've got to let people do what they're going to do. You can't control anything but your own actions and responses to the world around you. But damn, 
Working that out is one of the most vexing aspects of being human. My friend and I landed in Rochester at about 1 a.m. Sunday, January 19th. Jim came to pick me up at the airport, as he always did. No matter what time of day or night, Jim insisted on dropping me off and picking me up. For years, I traveled around the Northeast, often having to be up as early as 4.30. It didn't matter to him. He faithfully taxied me to see me off and greet me back home. What makes this act of love remarkable is the fact that Jim was decidedly, genetically, unarguably not a morning person. Remember the earlier detailed morning scramble he engaged in before work? He was always running late because he had an enviable love affair with sleep. Over the years, I've seen my husband fall asleep mid-sentence while talking to dinner guests. He fell asleep at the wheel once and flipped his truck. He even fell asleep on a treadmill. I received Jim's early morning shuttle service as an expression of love and care that warmed my heart. When he got out of the car to help me with my bags, I was alarmed by his appearance. His complexion was gray, and he looked like he hadn't slept in days. He said he had a chest cold. That sounded about right to me. He had a bad cough to accompany all the other symptoms he was experiencing. He told me he went for his regular run on Friday, but had to cut it short because he just didn't have the energy to finish. We went right to sleep when we got home but he got up early Sunday to go help some friends move furniture. That's the kind of guy Jim was. He was always ready and able to help a friend. Though he wasn't feeling well, he wasn't about to let them down. He came home from the moving excursion, wiped out. He lay down on the couch for the rest of the day. That night, he couldn't sleep. The pain started to radiate to his upper middle back. Finally, first thing in the morning, he relented. I took him to see his primary care physician. The doctor was on vacation, leaving the physician's assistant in charge. She said his left lung didn't sound like it was filling all the way, and instructed us to go to the emergency room so Jim's chest could be screened for a potential pulmonary embolism. I gave an I-told-you-so look to my husband, not really understanding what a pulmonary embolism was. Little clues along the way hinted at the dire nature of Jim's condition, but I didn't recognize them at the time. The PA, for example, gave off an incongruous vibe. Though she was sending us to the emergency room, she didn't seem alarmed. It was odd. So I naively thought, okay, Jim is 56. He is fit and active, but he also eats meat and cheese with wild abandon. It would make sense that he was having some type of cardiopulmonary something or other. Those are relatively common conditions that can be fixed. Do you want to know... What's super fun about being the surviving spouse? I don't just replay in my head all the things I think I did wrong while Jim was sick. Oh, no, 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 no. I go ahead and replay all the things I think I did wrong throughout our entire relationship. From the age of 22 right on through to 52. It's this self-guided spelunking tour into the deepest recesses of my mind where I get to visit self-hatred, anger, guilt, and shame. I can't control the exaggerated memories that get screened in the movie theater of my mind. My psyche bought a ticket to the worst chamber of horrors it could find. The tour begins with, should I have pressed him to go to the doctor sooner? And, I went to Puerto Rico while cancer was spreading through his body. To, why didn't I let him stop at the dinosaur museum in Wyoming? What is wrong with me? 
This spins out of control until I'm swimming in this mucky swamp populated by memories of selfishness and self-centered behavior. All the mean things I've ever said or did emerge around me like toxic algae blooms. I have 30 years of data from our relationship together. This exercise in self-flagellation is fucking brutal. But the worst part is my emergence from the swamp. The pain is crippling. I gasp for air and let out a full-throated cry that shakes my entire body. Why? Why aren't you here? You should be here telling me it's okay. Or you'll say, all of that was years ago. Why are you still dwelling on it? I love you, honey. That's all that matters. No preoccupate. Ti amo. The awareness that Jim can't be here to hash this or anything else out with me sits on my chest like an anvil, and I can't fucking breathe. I'd give anything for a good argument with Jim, to be followed by the grace of forgiveness and the most amazing hug you could ever imagine. When we hugged, it felt like we shared one heart. We were good at arguing, and we were equally good at making up. That's the point, isn't it? You aren't born knowing the right way to be. You have to learn. Jim and I were little more than kids when we met. We grew up learning how to be a couple while simultaneously learning how to be humans in this world. We made all the mistakes there were to make and logged a bunch of regrets. The stuck points we had, we shared, just like the countless beautiful moments we created. We always woke up together ready for another day of trying to be better. All this grappling with the messiness of our relationship doesn't end at the edges of our marriage. It extends to our children, our families, and our friends. We're all flawed humans trying to work it out. Trading in the warts on my soul for a snow-white complexion wouldn't be right because I would have never learned anything. I wouldn't have been prepared to handle adversity. Jim and I would have never grown into the strong couple we became. Weathering the rough-and-tumble aspects of our relationship prepared us for the most difficult test of our lives. The truth that matters is this. We marched through an apocalypse, chins up, hand in loving hand. Together, we gave that leukemia hell. There is a line in one of the songs from Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas that goes, Christmas Day will always be, just so long as we have we. From my perspective, the sentiment extends much further than Christmas. It applies to Veterans Day, Tuesday, Talk Like a Pirate Day, and Garbage Day. As we ride the wild roller coaster of life, the great gift we're given at birth that makes the good times joyful and the bad times bearable is each other. Every day will always be, just so long as we have we.
You're listening to Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning. Please visit my website at www.prometheanprojectamr.com to view pictures, read additional excerpts, and find links to information. You'll also find a donate button that directs funds to T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia research. Your donations are greatly appreciated by the patients, families, and healthcare workers who are waging their own wars against this cancer. Promethean Project was written, recorded, and produced by Jennifer Sanfilippo. The theme song was written by Jamie Malley, performed by Jamie and the Amsterdam 2000 Players, and produced by Adam Wilcox. Additional arrangements were composed and performed by Mike Kedley. Thank you all for the work and the love you poured into the music. A special thank you to the nurses and doctors at the Wilmot Cancer Center for working so hard to beat Jim's disease. Finally, sending big love and gratitude to my editors and my thought bouncers, Molly, Wendy, Christine, Jane, Ellen, Diane, Josh, Lori, Peg, Fran, and Kate. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Episode 2.